Well, good morning to all of you here at Central Campus and also those of you who are tuning in from our regionals in the city and also other locations in Alberta. May God continue to bless all of you as you serve him in that place that he has called you to serve him. Well, those of you who have been around Center Street for uh, a few years, you know that I don't like going to the dentist. I really don't. Now, I'll admit dentists have tried really hard to make the experience more pleasant over the years. When I was a teenager, I, my dentist would say only what was necessary. And then he'd go to work, uh, and uh, he wouldn't really say much of anything except, uh, open your mouth wider, please. Uh, or he'd say, just stop your screaming, please. He just was not one of my favorite people. Now, these days, dentists have become so much more polite. Uh, they're still masters of torture, but, but they're so much nicer about it. And now they tell you how they're going to hurt you before they actually do. Just before my dentist jazzed me with one of those six-inch needles, she says to me, you're going to feel a poke now, followed by a painful burning sensation. And I'm thinking, thanks for the heads up. You know, I, I wouldn't have known. Now, if I could avoid dental work, I would. But I don't, because there is a cost that comes when you avoid the dentist and have cavity-prone teeth the way I do. It's called dentures. It's called no teeth. It's called really bad teeth that hurt all the time. So I will face the music and keep seeing the dentist. Now, there's a life lesson in that. You can avoid the truth for a time. You can pretend that all is well for a time. But avoiding the truth doesn't make the truth go away. Ultimately, we reap what we sow. We pay the consequences for avoiding the truth. Now, we understand that, I believe, in principle. And yet, isn't it true that we often avoid or gloss over scriptures that are really convicting? or at least pretend that they don't apply to us. Well, we're going to look at some of those uncomfortable passages today in the book of Micah, the next book we're looking at in our walk through the Old Testament. And so I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles, if you would, to Micah, and uh, just keep it open as we kind of do a review of it. But before we get into it, I would like to just dedicate our time to the Lord in prayer. Would you please stand? <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word. We thank you for these prophets that we're being introduced to, Lord. The message that you gave them, Lord, which was not just for them, but it's also for us today. I pray that you would open our ears to your truth. You would focus our minds. You would soften our hearts. And, and then, Lord, you give us the courage to respond in whatever way you would ask us to. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I want to begin by first giving a little historical background of the events leading to uh, the book of Micah. After God brought the people of Israel out of slavery from Egypt, and he established them in the promised land, which is largely the area that modern Israel occupies today, the people eventually asked for a king. Now, the Lord didn't want them to have a king because he wanted to be their king. But they wanted a monarchy just like all the other nations around them had. And so God reluctantly granted them their wish. And then in the years that followed, they were led by King Saul, then by King David, 
and then by King Solomon. When Solomon died, his son Rehoboam became king. He made a number of leadership blunders which ultimately resulted in a civil war and in the nation of Israel being divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom whose capital city was Samaria and the southern kingdom of Judah whose capital city was Jerusalem. It is these two kingdoms and particularly these two capital cities that are the focus of Micah's prophets, prophecies. In chapter 1, Micah predicts the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel and its capital, Samaria. Over in chapters 4 and 5, he predicts the destruction of the southern uh, kingdom of Judah and its capital, Jerusalem, by the nation of Babylon. And he actually states that it will be the nation of Babylon, which is a remarkable prediction because at the time that Micah made that prediction, Assyria was the superpower of the world that day. And there was no indication that Babylon would ever be a superpower. Now, Micah warns his people that all these judgments are headed their way because of the hypocrisy and the deceit that's going on in their lives. They're going to church on a regular basis. They're learning all about the scriptures. And yet, they're pretending so many of those scriptures don't apply to them. And he specifically confronts three groups of people. Over in chapter 2 and 3, he confronts the business and the political leaders of his day who are plotting together to defraud poor people from their homes and from their land. In chapters 3, verse 5, Micah exposes the false prophets who are tickling the ears of people, telling them what they want to hear to make them feel good about themselves while ignoring the cries of the poor. And then down in verse 9, Micah condemns the priests, who like many television preachers and prosperity preachers today are distorting God's truth in order to gain fame and fortune. And Micah warns them and he challenges them to turn to God before it's too late. But they don't like what Micah has to say because they're living a very comfortable life. They're not about to change. And so they essentially tell Micah to take a flying leap. Tony Campolo tells of a time that he was in a restaurant sitting next to a couple who are in a booth next to the windows that face the street. And the couple were enjoying a very nice meal, when suddenly a homeless person comes walking by, stops right in front, on the other side of the window, right in front of where this couple was, and looks longingly at the food that they are enjoying. He stands there long enough for the couple to get visibly agitated and for the waiter to notice that they're agitated, and so the waiter quickly rushes over to their table, closes the shades, and says to the couple, don't let that bother you. Please continue to enjoy your meal. And Campolo goes on to say, that's what many of us do today. We don't want anyone to tell us about the misery and the plight of the less fortunate because it might disturb our comfort level. 
And so we close the drapes, as it were, and we try not to think about it. And we do that by ignoring the scriptures that speak to it or trying to explain those scriptures away or by shunning preachers or churches that remind us of what God requires of us. And yet, as I said a moment ago, avoiding the truth doesn't make the truth go away. Here's what the Lord says about the matter. In Psalm 68, 5, he says that he, the Lord, is the defender of the poor, the defender of the orphans and the widows. Jesus clearly states in Matthew 25 that true followers of his care for the needs of the least of these. He teaches that anyone who neglects the least of these neglects him. And anyone who oppresses the least of these oppresses him. In Matthew 6, Jesus said, being generous in our giving is an act of righteousness, which means that when we're greedy, when we refuse to be generous with what he's given to us, then that is actually an act of unrighteousness, which means it's sin. We're violating what God has clearly called us to do. In Proverbs 14, 31, it says it so clearly. He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. But whoever is kind to the needy honors God. So make no mistake, what you do with what God has given to you is a pretty accurate reflection of where your heart is at with the Lord. Jesus said where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, your heart follows your money, even as your money follows your heart. If you treasure Jesus and his kingdom purposes and his kingdom mission, then your heart and your money will go in the direction that he leads you. Now, I know that this is a tough message. It's tough for me to preach it. It's tough for me to preach it in part because I have to seek to live what I'm preaching. And I fall so far short. But it is the truth of God's word. And if we say that we're Christ followers, we're foolish to avoid it or pretend that it doesn't apply to us. Micah becomes very direct with the people of his day. Like a prosecuting attorney, he presents God's case against Israel. And in chapter 6, verse 6, after he's presented this case, someone, most likely one of the false prophets, stands up and asks Micah, well, okay, so what is it that God requires of us? And when you look at some of the things that this false prophet suggests there in verse 6, it really shows how, fall, how far they have fallen in their walk with God. They treat God like an idol, thinking that if they do some extra rituals for this idol, they can appease him. And Micah responds by giving a summary of how God wants them to live in what is 
one of the greatest verses in the Old Testament. Look at verse 8. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Let me unpack that for us a little bit. And I want to start with the last command first. God calls us to walk humbly with him. I want to start with that because this is really what Jesus called the first and the greatest commandment. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. To walk humbly with God means you have a personal relationship with God. You see, God's primary calling in our lives is not to stop sinning. His primary calling in our lives is not to just attend a church service on a weekend. His primary calling in our lives is not even to do things for him or to do things for other people, as important as all of those things are. No, his primary calling in our lives is to be in close relationship with himself, to seek to know him, to surrender our all to him, and to walk with him each and every day. And it is through our relationship with him that he directs our steps. To walk humbly with your God means you invite him to do your day with you, in which you say to him, Lord, good morning, my hands are open to you today. I'm available to do whatever you need me to do. I'm available to pray for someone. I'm available to share my love for you with someone. I'm available to serve someone. I'm available just to be there for someone. I'm going to be listening to your still small voice all day today, Lord, and responding to whatever, whatever assignments it is that you give to me. That's what it means to walk humbly with your God. That's what it means to stay connected to the vine. To walk humbly with your God means you do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. It means you're fully aware that you're alive today only because of his grace. And that everything you have is a gift from him. And one day you're going to leave it all behind. Which means you don't have an attitude of superiority. Because you have more or because you're more gifted. It also means you don't walk over others to make a name for yourself. Rather, you believe that God has your best interests at heart, that he knows what's ultimately good for you, and therefore you're content to abide in him and rest in him and what he calls you to do and let him open the doors that he wants to open. You don't need to crash them down. You just need to stay connected to him and be faithful to him. That's what it means to walk humbly with your God. Furthermore, this verse says that God wants us to love mercy. The more you realize and embrace all that God in Christ has done for you, 
how he's made it possible for you and me to be forgiven and restored in our relationship with him, the more we will love extending his mercy to others. When you love mercy, you see things through God's eyes. When you love mercy, you have the other person's interests at heart. You have the heart of the good Samaritan. You know, Dr. Martin Luther King, he said that the reason that the priest and the Levite walked around the bloodied man who had been beaten and left to die on the road, the reason they walked around him was because of the question that they asked themselves as they approached him. They were concerned about their own interests and they asked themselves, if I help this man, what is it going to cost me? What's it gonna do to my schedule? How's it gonna impact my bank account? And King says the reason that the Good Samaritan stopped and help this man is because the question he asked himself was not how is this going to affect me, but if I don't help this man, what's gonna to happen to him? What's gonna to happen to him? That's what it means to love mercy, to treat others as we would want to be treated. Regardless of whether they're rich or poor, strong or weak, whether they're the majority or the minority, whether they're liberal or conservative, or whether from our perspective they deserve God's goodness or not. To love mercy is to make your world a better place by being kind. Doing good things for the people around you. Serving someone who needs a hand, praying for someone who is hurting, or even giving things or giving money to people who are struggling. This is what the Lord requires to walk humbly with your God, to love mercy. And then, thirdly, to act justly. Think about how upset you get when you're treated unfairly or when someone that you love is treated unfairly. The reality is those who hold power can sometimes let their power go to their head and they begin to misuse it. John Ortberg tells a story of the old Mayor Daly of Chicago. His speechwriter approached him one day and, and he told him, you know, sir, he says, I, I really could use a raise. He says, I'm hurting a bit, I could use some more money. And Daly supposedly responded and said, sorry, man, I'm not gonna give you any more money. He said, you know, you should just be thankful that you get to work for a great American hero like me. Well, a speechwriter uh, didn't push it, but he didn't forget. Several weeks later, Daly was about to give the mother of all speeches. It was going to be on national television. And uh, apparently, I'm told that Mayor Daly 
rarely, if ever, read his speech that someone else had written for him before he got up to deliver it. And, and again, on this particular occasion, he did that. He grabbed his speech and, and, and uh, gave this speech to a large group of veterans on Veterans Day. It was getting national press coverage. It's a very passionate speech. He talks about how everyone has forgotten about the veterans. But I remember, he said, I care. And then he said, today, I am proposing a 17-point program, national, state, and citywide, to take care of the veterans for this country. Well, everyone's on the edge of their seat. Everyone's looking at themselves, wondering what he's going to say next. In fact, he himself is kind of wondering what he's going to say next. <laughs> and so he turns the page over, and it says, You're on your own now, you great American hero. <laughs> and the rest was a blank page. Now, we love stories like that. Because we love to see people who abuse their power get a little justice. Well, what God says here is refuse to contribute to the injustice by living justly yourself. In fact, judge the injustice and the hypocrisy in the lives of other people, not with your words, but with your life of integrity. And living a just life yourself. To act justly means you do what's right and pleasing in the eyes of God. And so, for example, don't take advantage of someone who's hurting financially. You know, sometimes a major corporation will decide to redecorate their offices or whatever, and they will... They'll auction off or they'll sell a whole bunch of stuff for just a fraction of the new cost. And we all get, you know, people come to those things and they get good deals and we celebrate that and that's a good thing. We love to celebrate getting good deals, don't we? But let me ask you, have you ever bargained for the lowest possible price with someone you knew was hurting financially? Someone you knew could have used the extra dollars just to make ends meet, and yet you still drove for the bottom line? The person who acts justly always keeps that in mind and focuses less on always getting a great deal for himself and more on meeting the needs of the other person. Acting justly means doing what you say that you'll do. Even if it costs you more in the end. You follow through on your promises. Acting justly means treating your employees well. It means paying them fairly. It means blessing them with respect and honor. An appropriate time away and for rest and relaxation. Acting justly also means putting in a good day's work for your employer. Not ju justifying slacking off because you think that your employer isn't treating you well. 
or fairly. Acting justly means to be honest about your expense account. It means not taking equipment from the office that isn't yours. Acting justly means I strategically help meet the needs of those that are less fortunate than myself, either personally by responding to the need that comes to my awareness or by giving systematically to my church or other relief agencies that meet the needs of the least of these. It means I budget for it. Acting justly means if I've been given more than I need, then I won't hoard it, but I will give more than the tithe in proportion to what God has given to me. Acting justly means I will live simply so that others can simply live. I recently heard a talk given by uh, Gary Hogan from the International Justice Mission. And he says that the biggest barrier that keeps people in our world from embracing the good news of Jesus Christ is the idea that God is good. He says they struggle with this idea that God is good because there is so much pain and suffering around them. He says more than 20,000 children will die today because their parents can't give them enough food. How are these families supposed to believe that God is good? Hundreds of thousands of children live abandoned on the streets of major metropolitan cities around the globe. When they wake up alone and perhaps battered tomorrow morning, how are they supposed to believe that God is good? And then there's the 1.5 billion people on our planet who have no access to medical care. How are they to believe that God is good? While we know and we believe to the core of our being that God is good. But you see, the Bible teaches that God has chosen to reveal his goodness and his grace primarily through us. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus said, You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Notice Jesus didn't say, you need to be the light of the world or you should be the light of the world. No, he said, you are the light of the world. God ordained that we are it the reflectors of his goodness and his grace. If there are people suffering who don't have food, who don't have clothes or shelter, then we're the ones that need to be the hands and the feet of Jesus to them. If there are people who are suffering because of intentional abuse and oppression of other people, then we, the church, need to be involved in bringing justice. 
Hogan tells about a man in India named Nagarish. Nagarish is a husband and father. He has three young boys. The problem is his wife, his boys, will never get medical care. His children will never get an education. Because you see, he and his family are owned by a slave master who operates a brick factory. And you say, how is that possible? I thought that slavery is outlawed in India, which it is, of course. But you see, no one knows or cares to check that over 80 slaves work inside this high-walled brick factory compound. These 80 slaves are made to work 16 hours a day, seven days a week, making and carrying bricks. Hogan says it's estimated that over 27 million people are in some form of slavery like this around the world. How are they supposed to believe that God is good? Or consider the case of Elizabeth from Burma. She's a 16-year-old girl who's trying to save money to go to college. But then one day, women come to her village and they say to her, Elizabeth, why don't you come with us to Thailand? Because there's some really good jobs there. You'll make a whole lot more there than you do here. And so she goes with these women, not realizing they are part of a sex trafficking ring. And they sell her into a brothel. They get a very high price for her because she's a virgin. Day after day, she's locked in this room, assaulted day after day with no hope. UNICEF estimates there's more than two million children like this held in forced prostitution in our world. How are they supposed to believe that God is good? I recently heard another talk by Wayne Gordon who is pastor of a church in downtown Chicago in a community called Lawndale. He describes how at the turn of the century, the, the 20th century, last century, Lawndale was a thriving community made up mostly of white folk. But then in the early 1940s and 50s, black people began moving into Lawndale. And it didn't take very long and the white folk began to moved to the suburbs. And when they moved, they took their businesses with them and their restaurants with them, and it wasn't too long, and the churches packed up and moved to the suburbs as well. And pretty soon there were a few businesses left in Lawndale to employ people. Poverty and despair began to set in, and things started getting really ugly in Lawndale. People's sheer boredom led to the abuse of alcohol and drugs, which in turn led to lots of crime to support their habits, which ultimately led to breakdown of family and the destruction of lives. Now we hear all of this, and is it true we're just simply overwhelmed by it all? I mean, what can I do? What can you do? Where do we even begin in trying to be the hands and feet of Jesus in all of this? 
The answer is found in the story of the feeding of 5,000. You remember the story. There's 5,000 people that were listening to Jesus teach. And after quite some time, they started getting hungry. They needed food. And so Jesus turned to his disciples and he asked them to provide the food for them. And they scratched their head, looked at each other and said, how on earth are we going to do that? We've got no resources to do this. And so they went back to Jesus and they said, we can't do this. And then Jesus asked the most interesting question. He said, what do you have in your hand? And all they had was a little boy's sack lunch that contained five loaves and two fishes. And Jesus took what they had. He did a miracle with it. And those 5,000 people were fed with food left over. You see, our responsibility is to give what we have and to trust the Lord to do what we can't do. Hogan goes on to tell the rest of the story of how God provided a miracle for Nagaresh. Because of the prayer and the financial support of people like you and me, his agency began to investigate the brick factory compound. And through the help of Nagarish himself, who risked his life to give this information, they eventually collected enough evidence to go to the local police who raided the facility, rescued all 80 of those men, women, and children. The children are now back in school. And Nagarish and his wife and family now own and operate their own brick factory because they're really good at making bricks. In the case of Elizabeth, undercover investigators employed by Hogan's organization were able to find her, get her out, take her to a place of Christian aftercare where she was able to find healing and wholeness again. And she has since graduated from college and she is not only a strong believer in God, but a strong believer in the goodness of God. Wayne Gordon tells how he and his wife and family, along with another white couple, they moved into Lawndale. And they did that a number of years ago, began to show the love of Jesus to them in practical life-giving ways. With the support of other Christians and with the support of other churches, you see. Don't ever minimize that. There's no way this couple could do, these couples could have done what they've done were it not for the support, the encouragement, and the prayers of people like you and me in churches all over the place. With the support of other Christians and churches. They initially did all that they could to respond to the immediate needs of homelessness and hunger and poverty around them. Then they eventually started a church in that community. And as that church grew and with the support of other churches, they began to take action on bringing community transformation. Wayne said one thing that really surprised me. It shocked me, actually, when I first read it. He said, you know, we discourage people from the suburbs coming to serve in our community. 
And he says, the reason is, is over the years, I've come to realize that people from the suburbs, they come and they serve for a few hours and then they leave feeling really good about themselves. But the people in our community feel terrible about themselves. They feel inadequate. They feel like they couldn't do it themselves. He says, when there is a huge crisis, like a tornado or a hurricane, he says, I'm all for people coming from everywhere and helping us financially and otherwise. But this is a, it's a matter of survival. It's a, it's a matter of life and death. Yes. In emergency situations like that, we need all the help we can get. But aside from that, he says, handouts to the poor in a neighborhood like theirs often does more harm than good. He says, we need to respect people's dignity and find ways to help them help themselves. And that's going to involve a whole lot more than just giving them a handout to hold them over for another day. We have to find long-term solutions to problems of employment and so forth. And so Wayne and his church began to partner with other churches and began to partner with other Christian businessmen to start a number of businesses in Lawndale. Wayne says our community had no restaurant. It was the talk of the, of the town. No restaurant in our community. And so he approached a couple of men who owned, a Christian men who owned a chain of restaurants in the Chicago area. I believe it was nine. He said, I need you to open a tenth one. Let's call it a tithe. I need you to open a tenth one in Lawndale. And they did. And God used that restaurant not only to bring a more positive spirit in that community and increase fellowship back into their community, but to employ a number of people from their community. Through other partnerships, they've established a medical clinic that provides medical care not for free, but on a sliding scale so people don't feel the care is just another handout. He says, I remember the days when folks from the suburbs would come into our community around Christmas time with boxes full of Christmas gifts. And he says, I began to notice that as they would walk into the front part of the house with all these gifts, the father would often walk out the back, ashamed that he couldn't provide gifts for his children. Wayne says, we don't do that anymore. He says, we established a toy store where gifts from people outside and inside the community are brought together and they're made available to, to every family in the community and every family in the church at a greatly reduced price. And parents are encouraged to come and to shop for the gifts that they want for their children. They've developed a jobs training program a shuttle service for those who are working in places outside of the community. They continue to develop partnerships with businesses. And folks, as an increasing number of people are finding employment and new life, Jesus' life has begun to enter Lawndale. 
You see, folks, that is what happens when we join together as the church. When we join hands with other agencies, other churches, in bringing the love of Jesus to the lives of the hurting and the broken. There are things that each of us can do, that we must do in response to the needs that God brings to our attention in our community or at work or wherever it is. But as you've heard me say before, if we're really going to bring lasting transformation in some of the situations in our world, in some of the communities and some of the countries of our world, then like Gary Hogan talks about, we're going to need to invest our time and our money and agencies that God has called and equipped to do so. And that includes the church. Several months ago, you'll recall that Paul Brandt shared how a number of businessmen here in the Calgary area, they bought a building in what was, in Cambodia, in what was going to be a brothel. And they bought that building and they turned it into a church, a church that would bring support, a church that that would rescue those from the sex trade in what Paul defines and says is ground zero in the human trafficking sex trade. That church is now being supported by what we give here. We are making a difference at ground zero in the sex traffic industry through our support. And if we're going to make a real difference in the kind of community transformation that Wayne Gordon talks about here in Calgary or in a community in some other part of the world, it's going to require all of us working together as a church to make an impact. Because there's so much more we can do better together than just individually. And it's going to require us taking what God has put in our hand and to generously support the mission of the church. In Deuteronomy 15, verse 11, God says, I command you to be open-handed, open-handed towards your brothers and toward the poor and the needy in your land. And what that, that passage is teaching is if we are generous, if we're open-handed with what God has given to us, there will be more than enough to do what Jesus wants us to do here in Calgary and around the world. But it, it all comes down to each of us being obedient to our Lord. Gary Hogan ended his talk by saying the greatest encouragement that he's ever seen was what they found when they closed down that brothel that Elizabeth was in. And they went to her room, room number five, in which she was so horrifically abused. And in the nightmare of that room, they noticed a scripture passage on the wall that Elizabeth had scrawled with her own hand. It was Psalm 27, verse 1, which says this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 
The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. You know, if Elizabeth could have that kind of faith in God in room number five, then who are we to sit in the paralysis of despair? God is speaking to us as directly as he spoke through Micah to the people of his day. And he's saying, this is what I require. To act justly. To love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. I ask you again, what do you have in your hand that you need to surrender to God? So that he can continue to perform miracles in the lives of people. Whether rich or poor educated or uneducated in this city or around the world. Would you stand for closing prayer? Heavenly Father, this has been Another hard message, Lord, to hear and another hard message to give. Because we recognize, Lord, how far we fall short. But I thank you, Lord, for being straight with us through Micah about how you want us to live as your children and how you can take what is in our hand and change someone's future forever with it. I pray for each and every person here. Lord, that you would remind us that how we live our lives and what we do with what you've given to us is an accurate reflection of the state of our heart and the state of our relationship with you. Help each and every one of us, Lord, to live out what you've called us to be and to do. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.